This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I have few illusions and no money, but I'm staying for the finish. When people keep telling you you can't do a thing, you kind of like to try. Margaret Chase Smith. Although George Romney campaigned vigorously and spent large sums of money, the polls continued to move against him. Personally, I was disappointed by Romney's withdrawal. Even though I had knocked him out of the ring, now I would win without having actually defeated an opponent in the election. And the test of the election was, after all, the reason I had decided to enter the primaries in the first place. Richard Nixon Today, I reaffirm my candidacy for President of the United States. I intend to stay the course. I believe we must not permit the dream of social progress to be shattered by those whose promises have failed. I have only just begun to fight. Ted Kennedy The New Hampshire results were disappointing, and I know the road to the nomination will be long and tough. But we'll pull out of this temporary slump and win the nomination as surely as if the figures Tuesday night had been reversed. George H.W. Bush Successful presidential campaigns require three basic things. First, people have to be able to look at you and imagine you as president. Then you have to have enough money and support to become known. After that, it's a battle of ideas, message, and issues. Paul Songus met the first two criteria and was out to win the ideas battle. I was determined not to let him do it. Bill Clinton As many of you are no doubt aware, The first four contests of the 2020 U.S. presidential election are coming up in February. The Iowa caucuses will be on February 3rd, the New Hampshire primary on February 11th, and on the Democratic side, there will be caucuses in Nevada on February 22nd and a primary in South Carolina on February 29th. Republicans in Nevada will meet in a state convention to allocate their delegates to the National Convention on February 21st through the 23rd, and the South Carolina Republican Party opted to cancel their presidential primary. Just these four states prove that, even in 2020, the American system for choosing a presidential nominee is not cut and dry. And I know there are people asking, what is the difference between a primary and a caucus anyway? And why are some delegates getting chosen by a state party convention instead of the voters? Also, who decided that these four states should go first? We'll explore these questions, dear listener, in this special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. And thank you for joining me. I know that our American listeners may think it a bit crazy to release an episode on Super Bowl weekend, and special thanks to those of you listening on the release weekend. Despite the timing, I wanted to make sure to get this episode out before the first contest of the 2020 presidential election. As you heard, I had a plethora of assistance in bringing this episode together. Voicing Margaret Chase Smith and George H.W. Bush were Vicki and Eric of the Ransack History Podcast. History is full of hidden gems in terms of fascinating stories, interesting characters, and just plain odd moments. With each episode, Vicki and Eric go in search of those gems to share with their audience. Believe me, you'll want to join them for an adventure through the annals. 
Steve Guerra provided the quote from Richard Nixon, and he's the host of not one, but two great podcasts, The History of the Papacy and Beyond the Big Screen. While I have little to add and much to learn about papal history and have appreciated the insights Steve has provided on that podcast, I have joined Steve on an episode of his other podcast to discuss the film Amistad. If you'd like to learn more about the history behind the production on an amazing assortment of films, be sure to check out Beyond the Big Screen. For Ted Kennedy, I turn to Sean Munger, an author and historian who currently hosts the Second Decade podcast, which takes listeners on journeys through the second decade of the 19th century. If you'd like to catch a sneak peek at what's ahead for the narrative episodes of Presidencies, be sure to give Second Decade a listen. Finally, to voice Bill Clinton, I enlisted the help of my husband, Alex. While he doesn't have a podcast of his own, he was a driving force in helping me to get started in podcasting, and I can't thank him enough for all of the many ways he supports this effort as well as all of my endeavors in life. Thanks again to all of these amazing folks for their willingness to be a part of this special episode, and you can find links to all of their podcasts on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Just a reminder from the last special episode, my focus is on presidential history. You'll have to find another source for information on current politics, which, especially for voters, I encourage you to explore numerous sources to find out more about the candidates from which you'll be deciding. With the advent of the internet and information at your fingertips, it has become easier to obtain information, but the onus is still on the information seeker to discern whether the source is reliable or not. That's where verifying through multiple sources comes in and being aware of any intended or unintended bias on the part of the source. Bias doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't true, as we all have a bias, but it does mean you may not be seeing the whole truth when you just engage with one source for your information. That's why I consult with multiple sources for this podcast, to ensure that the information that I provide is as accurate as it can be. With that said, Let's dive into our sources and start answering some of these questions. As we discussed in the last special episode, the presidential primary is still a relatively recent development. We'll get back to primaries in a moment, but I'd like to first look at the caucus system, as that is the more direct descendant of the pre-20th century nomination process. The first thing that we should note is that, while we lump the caucuses together to talk about the caucus states, in fact, The operation of the caucus system varies by both state and party. Generally speaking, it's a system with many levels, with meetings held over the course of weeks, and in some instances, months. As described by the CQ Press Guide to U.S. Elections, quote, There is mass participation at the first level only, with meetings often lasting several hours and attracting only the most enthusiastic voters or dedicated party members. Participation even at the first level of the caucus process, typically consists of local party activists. Many rank-and-file voters find a caucus complex, confusing, or intimidating. While this can mean lower participation, in instances where a candidate has generated a large amount of support leading into the caucus, it can lead to huge turnouts. And indeed, caucus states were key in 2008 to the nomination of then-Senator Barack Obama. The Iowa caucus, being the traditional first contest in the primary season, generally is the caucus that attracts the most attention. While there was a dramatic shift away from caucuses to primaries in the 1970s, as discussed in the last special episode, they've enjoyed a slight resurgence in the 21st century, particularly in smaller states. 
Proponents of the caucus system argue that it helps to build the party apparatus in the state and allows the voters who attend to get more deeply involved in the process than just taking a minute to go to a voting precinct. However, the argument can also be made that the caucus is not as accurate of a reflection of voter opinion as a primary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To understand a bit more about the primary systems, and yes, like with caucuses, there is not just one way to hold a primary. To understand primary systems, we have to go a little deeper into the development of the primary system than we did last time. The first state to enact a presidential primary law was Florida in 1901, but the provision created by this law is not what we would recognize as the primary system today. Again, from the CQ Press Guide to U.S. Elections, quote, The law gave party officials an option of holding a party primary to choose any party candidate for public office, as well as delegates to the national conventions. However, there was no provision for placing names of presidential candidates on the ballot, either in the form of a preference vote or with information indicating the preference of the candidates for convention delegates. I mentioned the role of Theodore Roosevelt in the push for presidential primaries, but we have to turn to a lesser-known but pivotal figure who was nearly equal to T.R. in passion to credit for his role in the first law mandating direct election of delegates by the primary system. Robert M. LaFollette, the governor of Wisconsin from 1901 to 1906, was described in Edmund Morris's Theodore Rex as follows, quote, an insurgent even as to hairstyle. Dense and irrepressible, a pompadour did what it could to add to La Follette's height. Five feet, five inches tall. He was opaque, except for his facial flush. Inside, he was all dark, dour aggression. La Follette, like Roosevelt, was of the progressive wing of the Republican Party. But when the La Follette-supporting progressive delegation from Wisconsin presented their credentials at the 1904 Republican National Convention, the delegation was rejected in favor of a more traditionally Republican delegation. LaFollette would have none of that. When he returned to Wisconsin, he successfully pushed for a new law requiring the direct election of delegates to the party's national convention. The Florida law had only offered the opportunity to hold a direct election to choose delegates. LaFollette's law in Wisconsin mandated it. However, there was still one more step to go in terms of making what we would think of as a presidential primary, which would come in Oregon in 1910. Though the Wisconsin law required delegates to be chosen by direct election, it did not bind them to an actual candidate for president. When LaFollette went to Washington, D.C. as a U.S. senator, he developed a close working relationship with Senator Jonathan Bourne, a progressive Republican from Oregon. Born in 1910, was the sponsor of a state referendum to set up a presidential preference primary, which would bind delegates to support the candidate who won the primary. Though the dozen or so states that held primaries in 1912 did not bind their delegates as Oregon did, this was a pivotal point in the development of the modern primary system. Then as now, the rules governing primaries differ from state to state. 
While most primaries do allocate delegates to the respective party's national convention with a certain amount of binding to the voters' preference for the presidential nomination, some states elect delegates independently of the presidential preference vote. Likewise, even with the states that do bind delegates to the voters' preference for president, states differ on just how many ballots delegates are required to be bound to the voters' preference. While this has not been an issue in modern elections, with the list of viable candidates for a party's presidential nomination seemingly growing larger each successive election cycle, this could come into play in the not-too-distant future. To further complicate matters, some state parties allocate delegates from the primary in a winner-take-all system. Namely, whoever is the top vote-getter gets all of the delegates, while others have a proportional system whereby the delegates are allocated based on the proportion of the statewide vote they received, while still other states allocate delegates based on the winner of each congressional district, which means that candidate Alpha could get the delegates from Congressional District A, while candidate Beta may win all the other congressional districts in the state and claim all of those. Got it? No? Okay, to try to make this as uncomplicated as possible, We've got four main possibilities for primaries. Either delegates will be chosen who aren't bound to a particular presidential candidate. Delegates will be bound to the candidate who wins the state. Delegates will be apportioned based on the preference of the congressional district they represent. Or, delegates will be chosen in proportion to the overall state's preference for a presidential nominee. We won't go into superdelegates just yet, but we will cover those on a future episode. However, I will mention one other complication. Who exactly gets to vote in these contests anyway? For those who are not registered to vote in the U.S., when you go to register, you can enter a party affiliation or you can register as an independent. Now, not all parties have ballot access in every state, and I'll try to cover that in a future episode. But for the time being, just know that when someone registers to vote, they can say they belong to a certain party or they're independent. Are you with me so far? Okay, so when it comes to actually voting, primaries and caucuses can either be open, semi-open, or closed. What's the difference? Well, in a closed caucus or primary, only people who are registered members of the party can vote. Thus, if you're a registered Republican voter, then you can vote in the Republican primary, but you can't vote in the Democratic primary. Simple enough. In an open contest, You can vote in any primary you want, but you can only vote once. Thus, if a registered Democratic voter decided that they wanted to vote in the Republican caucus, they would be free to do so in an open caucus state, but they couldn't turn around and go to a Democratic caucus in the same election and cast the second ballot. One vote, but the voter, no matter their party affiliation or lack of affiliation in the case of independents, can choose which party's contest they want to participate in. The registered independent voters are what makes the semi-open contest a bit more interesting. In those caucuses or primaries, while people who are registered in a particular party can only vote in their party's contest, independent voters get to choose which one they'll vote in. In a closed primary or caucus state, registered independents don't get to vote, but the semi-open contests allow them to choose which party's election they'd like to cast their ballot in. I know that this may already seem like a maddening system, but since I'm in the midst of the Jefferson series, I can't help but think that Jefferson would love this idea of states serving as laboratories for trying out various systems. 
I can picture him in his library poring over books to understand it all. And I imagine he would make some charts and send off some inquiry letters to various state election boards. Even with this experimentation, though, it does seem like some rigidity has settled into the system which Jefferson would question, namely Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. Despite being more closely derived from the traditional system, the preeminence of the Iowa caucus to the presidential election cycle is an idea just under a half century old. As discussed, The 1968 election served as an impetus for the Democratic Party to rethink how it elected delegates to the party's national convention. Thus, a group of four Iowa Democratic operatives got together and devised the modern Iowa caucus system, including that a candidate must reach a viability threshold of 15% of support in order to gain delegates. While crafting this system, its architects did not imagine that it would come to play a large role in choosing presidential candidates. However, one campaign in the next election cycle saw the revamped Iowa caucus as a key part in a path to victory for their candidate. The frontrunner in the 1972 Democratic presidential contest was Senator Edmund Muskie of Maine. Muskie had a career spanning decades and had been the party's vice presidential nominee in 1968. However, a host of other Democrats had lined up to challenge Muskie for the nomination, including the junior senator from South Dakota, George McGovern. McGovern's team could not compete with Muskie's campaign in terms of funds, and they had little hope of besting a candidate from Maine in the primary in neighboring New Hampshire. Without an early win, there was little chance that they could stay viable for long. Thus, when McGovern's advisors started analyzing the early contest, they realized that not only were the Iowa caucuses scheduled early, but they would basically have the field to themselves as all the focus was on New Hampshire. Muskie had secured the endorsement of Senator Harold Hughes of Iowa, who had originally intended on competing in the caucus, but had dropped out. With Hughes' departure from the field and his endorsement, Muskie and his team assumed the contest was theirs for the taking, and they could focus their efforts elsewhere. Meanwhile, McGovern and his staff worked to campaign and get supporters out to the caucuses on January 24, 1972. Though McGovern came in second with 27% to Muskie's 39%, the second-place showing gave the campaign enough momentum to propel McGovern to ultimately secure the party's nomination that year. Since then, the Iowa caucus has proven to be key to ultimately successful campaigns by Jimmy Carter, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama and has helped propel Gerald Ford, Walter Mondale, Bob Dole, Al Gore, John Kerry, and Hillary Clinton to win their respective parties' nomination over the years. Because of this, it has retained its status as one of the biggest states on the presidential election calendar. Following Iowa comes the New Hampshire primary. Since 1920, this has been the first state primary held in the election season, but in 1980, The Republican primary in Puerto Rico was held nine days before the one in New Hampshire, and in 2004, the Democratic primary in the District of Columbia was held 14 days before New Hampshire's. Still, since 1920, no other state has held its primary before New Hampshire. At times, the delegates chosen in the New Hampshire primary were technically unlinked to a specific candidate, though it seems that there was unofficial linkage to particular candidates in some of the early contests. For example, in 1928, the winning Republican delegates from New Hampshire were unofficially pledged to Herbert Hoover, while the winning Democratic delegates were unofficially pledged to Al Smith. 
Beginning in the 1952 election, it seems that the New Hampshire delegates were officially linked candidates and have remained as such since. One thing that has changed over time, however, was the timing of the first primary. Up until the 1976 election, the New Hampshire primary was held in March. That year, it was bumped up to February 24th. As the years went on, the New Hampshire primary kept creeping earlier until the year 2000 when it was held on February 1st. Then, in 2004, was moved up to late January. Part of the reason for the creeping forward of the timeline was that other states were looking to jockey into more of a prominent position of deciding the presidential nominees. The majority of the 15 primaries held in 1968 were held in May and June, with only New Hampshire's in March and three more in April. However, as the number of primaries ratcheted up and became more critical to winning the nomination, candidates began to focus their efforts on proving their viability in the first few states in the election cycle. Indeed, in 1976, New Hampshire proved to be a crucial step, and indeed, in many ways, more critical than the Iowa caucus, in propelling forward a little-known former governor from Georgia named Jimmy Carter and slumming down a crowded field. A former governor from California named Ronald Reagan experienced a similar boost from a large win in New Hampshire four years later. Thus, in a desire to play kingmaker like Iowa and New Hampshire, more states began moving their primaries and caucuses up in the calendar. The problem with this became that the shortened campaign window hindered the chances of dark horse candidates in favor of candidates with large campaign coffers and a larger operation behind them. Also, there is a big difference in trying to start up a bare-bones campaign in a state like New Hampshire than in a state such as Florida. For someone with little household name recognition and limited campaign funds, the chances are astronomically low that they could convince enough people to vote for them to even come in third in a state with nearly 21.5 million residents and nearly 66,000 square miles to cover, just over 170,000 square kilometers, like Florida but with only just over 1.3 million people and just under 9,000 square miles, or just over 24,000 square kilometers, to cover in New Hampshire, they'll stand a better shot. Recognizing the need for a sectional balance, however, there have been a couple of states recently allowed to move up their contest. Numerous states, including Delaware, Arizona, Michigan, and Florida, have tried to inch into a prime spot in the election calendar. But since 2000, South Carolina has joined the ranks of one of the first primaries and remained there. This move up has even been sanctioned by party rules. And in 2008, when Florida and Michigan moved their primaries into January, the states were threatened with sanctions, which would have either reduced the number of delegates they sent to the respective national conventions or just had their delegations not seated at all. By party rules, only New Hampshire and South Carolina could have primaries that early. With the Northeast, South, and Midwest covered, it made sense to add a Western state to the mix. Enter Nevada and then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Following the 2004 election, Reid began to push for Nevada as being a Western bellwether as it had developed a streak for picking the candidate in numerous election cycles who went on to win the presidency. Nevada would switch off of the primary system and instead revert back to a caucus for the 2008 cycle, and they were moved up in the calendar to be the third contest in that campaign. It will retain this place in the 2020 cycle, though, as noted, Republicans in Nevada have opted against holding a caucus this year. 
I hope that gives you a better idea of what to expect in the next month. I plan for the next episode in the special series to come out just prior to that phenomenon we now call Super Tuesday, and we'll discuss how this particular Tuesday came to be quite so super over the years. Just to note, in case you were wondering, it's not the same Tuesday every four years. I mean, that would make it easy, right? Thanks so much again to Vicki, Eric, Steve, Sean, and Alex for providing the intro quotes for this episode. As I'm still trying to get a feel for how this will fit into my already existing schedule, I can't tell you exactly when the next special episode will be released. However, I'll spread the word as soon as possible on social media and will be providing plenty of presidential history content on there in the meantime. So it's a win-win to follow me on one, if not multiple, social media outlets, right? If you're not following me there already, check me out on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, or on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. Feel free to send me any questions or comments you may have on there, or if you'd like to reach out to me via email, I'm available at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Sources used for this episode, as well as much more information, can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. I cannot thank you enough for listening. I hope this proved informative, and I look forward to joining you next time with our Super Tuesday Spectacular. Until then, take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.